0: The Pat Kenny Show. With Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am. On News Talk, of the Spanning across five volumes and some 1,500 pages. And I'm joined now by the general editor of the five volumes, John McCafferty, UCD Professor of History. John, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much, Pat. What a task. What <laughs> yeah, it was a biggie. It all goes back to Henry VIII. It does, yes.
1: Henry, Henry essentially breaks with Rome. He doesn't do anything... Theologically, very exciting. He's not very Protestant. Martin Luther hates him, for instance. Um, and he just declares that there's going to be a Church of England, just like Rwanda's been declared a safe country uh, the other day by
0: Westminster. So, just a declaration uh, I am now head of the Church of England. But theologically, not much difference to what Rome was offering at the time. No,
1: people around him wanted to push a more Protestant agenda, but. Um, Henry was quite conservative, actually, theologically. There's one day in 1540 where he execu- executes both
0: Catholics and Protestants on the same day. It's so very even-handed you know, his a vanity, a very, yeah. a very even-handed despot. How then did uh, the Catholic Church in, uh, in England, becoming the Church of England, um, diverge from Rome at what point? it really begins to take off under Henry's son,
1: Edward VI, who's a child and has been brought up as a Protestant. And the people around Edward VI really push for a much more thoroughgoing, Central European kind of reformation. And that's where it kicks off. Then they go back to Catholicism under Mary. And then Elizabeth comes up with, the beginning of what we understand as the Church of England, which is, as someone once
0: said, Protestant eggs and uh, Catholic oil. It's a mayonnaise. OK. Now, the, the, the question of what was going on in Europe at the time, I mean, we had um, obviously Martin Luther, and then we had Calvinism and mm-hmm. all of these other uh, Protestant religions. And yet, if you look at Western Europe, particularly Italy and Spain and France, they remain Catholic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there's strong monarchies there that, that hold the line, especially the Spanish monarchy, which in, then influences the Irish, the Irish church quite a lot. And I think a thing that people often forget is, is that big swades of Central Europe, um, parts of Poland and what we would now consider parts of Austria and so on, they're actually re catholicised very early on. So they have the Reformation,
0: go Protestant and come back back, Yeah, Catholic. Now, meantime, in in England particularly, and we'll talk about the Catholic Church in Scotland maybe if we get a a time. Mm -hmm. In England, did you have two fairly large uh, bodies, a Church of England and also simultaneously a Roman Church? Yeah, it takes time for it to develop because people are
1: confused at first and they don't know what to do and they think maybe it's just a row between the king and the pope and they're terribly worried about their ancestors and the dead, you know, and and what's going to happen, you know, if I make a choice, am I going to end up in the wrong heaven, the wrong hell? Yeah. Um, And... Really, it's only in Elizabeth's reign that people begin to settle down into distinctively Protestant
0: and Catholic groupings. Now, we we look then to Ireland and Mm. uh, you have, uh, obviously, the the English domination. I say English rather than British because primarily, I suppose, uh, an English movement. uh, Domination. And um, the attempt to Protestantize or proselytize uh, the Irish people, it didn't work. No,
1: it didn't work. I, I think for two reasons, fundamentally. One is... You can change people's religion, you can take people's land, you can deprive them of political voice, but you can't do the three at once. And that was the big problem for Dublin Castle, trying to do those. And the other problem... So then, did
0: Catholicism become a focus of resistance then?
1: It did. And it also cohered around language. About 85% of the population spoke Irish. And with some few exceptions, the Church of Ireland broke the cardinal rule of the Reformation, which is preaching the language people speak. But Dublin Castle was committed to Anglicising and promoting the use of English, and so it didn't do that. Whereas in Wales, where they use Welsh, Wales becomes overwhelmingly
0: Protestant. Okay, so if the Church of Ireland had preached in Irish, they might have had more traction. I think they probably would. I mean, initially, all indications are nobody knows what the hell is going on, and... It takes time for people to decide. Uh, There's always a characterization of Irish Catholicism as being a peasant Catholicism. And on the other hand, uh, the English Catholicism was still the Catholicism of the aristocrats.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that functions in in two ways. There are powerful aristocrats in England and indeed some in Ireland who basically give the fingers to the state and say, come and get me. People like the Norfolks, people like the Countess of Kildare, who runs openly um, in County Kildare, a huge house full of Jesuits, masses, the whole lot, and there's nothing they can do. She's too powerful. Uh, And then you have a lot of other people. What's interesting in accounts both from England and Ireland is is that the Catholic priests who are on the ground often will dine with the toffs upstairs and then go downstairs after dinner and do a bit of proselytising among the kitchen servants and all
0: the rest. So they're very conscious of trying to reach both groups, which is... So so in describing Irish Catholicism as a, a kind of a peasant Catholicism, mm. was there an intellectual wing to yeah. Irish Catholicism? Because we know in, in England there certainly was a very high church kind of yeah. intellectuality about Catholicism there.
1: Yeah, um, Irish, the intellectual wing of Irish Catholicism essentially goes into exile. So you have these Irish colleges all over the continent. You have places like the Franciscan House, St Isidore's in Rome, where they're operating at the highest intellectual level, promoting the doctrine of the immaculate conception, promoting the writings of Saint Francis, writing histories. So they they go into exile. So if you like, yeah, the the, the brains trust of Irish
0: Catholicism
1: goes into exile until the nineteenth century and lives on the continent.
0: Now we know about our penal laws mm. and uh, how uh, priests were, you know, in hiding and hidden, by and large, by. The women yes. who uh, conspired yes. to, to, to hide them. And yeah. um, Were there no penal laws in Britain? Oh, there were, yeah. And, actually, and did they have the same kind of draconian effect?
1: Yeah, yeah. And you have these priestholds where priests were hidden in houses behind, uh, you know, false panelling and so on. So, yeah, and actually the laws were tougher in uh, both England and Scotland. And in fact, we know that some English Catholics moved to Ireland because it was easier to actually be here. So we often forget that some of the people who are involved in the plantation of Ulster, for instance, were actually Catholics.
0: Now, um, there's much about the women and mm-hmm. how women were responsible for uh, basically adhering to some of the great traditions uh, or, yes. or promoting the great traditions, the pilgrimages and so on. And I mentioned that they hide the priests. At what point did the priestification of Irish Catholicism take place?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question and much disputed by historians. But I, I think you're looking at the mid to late 19th century. And in fact, one of the big things that came out of the volumes for us was that this period of very sacramentalized, very clericalized Catholicism on both islands is actually a historical aberration. Um, you know, people like me growing up, the number of priests per person was at the highest ever historically. Yeah. Um, and what we have now with far fewer clergy is actually
0: reverting to the 17th, 18th century norm. So uh, what was worship like in the 17th, 18th century? I mean, if you didn't have a priest mm. or a bundle of priests for every parish and the churches were miles away, no motor cars, yeah. all done by horseback or horse yeah. and trap. yeah. So people, people didn't go to Mass as much and people, the church didn't
1: ask them to go to Mass as much, quite simply. And also what people did was um, you would go along the street, uh, places like Wine Tavern Street in Dublin and there'd be an ordinary house and you go in the door and actually inside there's a fully kitted out Catholic church. But it wasn't, it was discreet. And you can see that in the streetscape of Dublin today. So Clarendon Street Church off Grafton Street down a little discreet lane. It's a relic of those times.
0: Now, uh, we know about uh, Victorian mores and social mm-hmm. attitudes and, uh, you know, the uh, matters of sex and so on, which mm-hmm. came to dominate uh, the Irish church. Was it the same in, in Britain?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the whole business of sexual morality, you know, taking up a dominant role is actually to do with wider social changes in in the late 19th and early 20th century. And indeed, many of the attitudes that Catholic Catholics are held to have about sex are actually fairly common across the population. So Church of England is totally opposed to the divorce until the middle of the 20th century. So it's, it's a question
0: of not uniqueness but momentum. Um, one final point uh, which I find fascinating, the attraction to Catholics uh, of the British army.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, um, essentially what happens is, is the British army, uh, especially in its dealings in India, needs men. And Irish people before the famine were exceptionally tall and strong by the European uh, norm because of the potato and buttermilk diet. And Irish Catholics flood into the British army. And even before emancipation in 1829, the British army is already providing chaplains and chapels and the whole apparatus. And it's actually the inclusion of Catholics in the British army that leads to Catholic emancipation in the end. And... Hundreds of thousands of Irish Catholics take part in, and, and right through even to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amazing popularity, for instance, one thing I learned from these volumes of the RAF for Irish people is, Irish people loved the RAF even after independence because it had no backstory. They weren't red coats. It okay. was
0: something that Irish people could freely join, and they joined in droves. My goodness, uh, it, th- so many fascinating stories in fifteen hundred pages. Uh, who is this aimed at, John? The the five volumes, because it's—I mean—it's a big enterprise to to buy five volumes of study.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's it's aimed first of all at historians in general but I think it's, it's digestible for people. You don't have to buy all five volumes. You might want to buy the one that interests you in particular and we hope that Oxford will bring it out in paperback in,
0: in due course. In due course. Well, uh, Five Centuries of Catholicism and the editor of uh, the Oxford History of British and Irish Catholicism, John McCafferty, Professor of History at UCD. Thank you very much for joining us in studio. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.